It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, and today, it's all about... Socialism. 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 Socialist. 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 So this is where you scream, but he's a socialist! Now, the reason the term socialism has become a ubiquitous presence in our current political discourse is because of this guy. What democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of one percent in this country own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. And on Wednesday at George Washington University, senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders laid out his vision of democratic socialism. Democratic socialism means to me requiring and achieving political and economic freedom in every community in this country. And let me be very, very clear as well. When I state that the only way we achieve these goals is through a political revolution. The speech also came at a time when his campaign seems to have stalled. He trails Vice President Joe Biden in national and early state polls. Meanwhile, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg are eating into his support among liberal voters. The speech was an opportunity for Sanders to reset the terms of the debate, and he hopes his position in the race. I sat down with the senator in a conference room at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee near Capitol Hill, not long after he finished his speech. So tell me how long this is going to be. And... Probably about 15 minutes. Do you have time for that? that work? Okay. He was ready to get down to business, so I dove in. Let's talk about socialism for a second. So for some of us who in school learned about socialism, it was the means of production that the government controls, or it was, this is Western Europe and it's capitalism, but government's more engaged. Where does democratic socialism fit into these assumptions of socialism? I think for me, at least, it falls much into the latter, and that there's a lot to be learned from countries and Scandinavia and Western Europe, uh, they guarantee health care to all people as a right, uh, that do much better with the children and the senior citizens in their countries that we do. Uh, in some cases in Germany, for example, make sure that workers are represented on the board of directors of large uh, corporations. So nobody here that I know of uh, is talking about a massive takeover of the means of production. Might have made some sense 150 years ago, but that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is an economy and a government that works for all people, and not just the 1%. And the point that I made uh, this afternoon in my remarks was to say that way back in 1944, in, in a speech that didn't get a whole lot of attention because it was the middle of World War II, the end of World War II, and Roosevelt died a year later, what he said was something pretty profound. What FDR said is that we have a constitution and a bill of rights that guarantee us political freedom, all right? You can say anything you want. You're on radio where you can do whatever you want, and that's guaranteed and defended. You can practice any religion that you want. You can go out and protest, et cetera, et cetera. And that is terribly important. But what he said back then is that we need to go further. It's not just guaranteeing political rights of freedom. It is economic rights as well. Are you really free if you're working for $9 an hour now and have to work 70 or 80 hours a week to take care of your family? Are you free if when you get sick you cannot afford to go to the doctor? Or if you're 90 years of age and you can't afford your prescription drugs? If you're spending 50% of your limited income on housing? 
And what he said back then is that we have got to ensure that economic rights, economic rights are human rights. And that's kind of where I come from. Well, and that's another thing you talked about in your speech today was FDR, when he made speeches like this, when he was implementing the New Deal, was called a socialist or a communist. LBJ, when he was great society and Medicare, socialist, communist. Neither of those men were taking on that. They did not call themselves a socialist the way that you do. Well, let me go to your first point, and it's important that everybody know this, as I'm sure many do. Every program, and Harry Truman uh, made this, and, and I, I quoted Truman today. I hadn't until recently seen that quote. He said, basically, every time government tries to do something for working families, it is called socialist. Uh, and, you know, as you indicate, when uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson passed Medicare, you had the AMA and all these right-wing guys say, oh, this is socialism. Obamacare is socialism. Obamacare is socialism. <laughs> the the, the uh, stimulus package of Obama was socialistic. So all that I'm saying here today is that it would be a major step forward for the wealthiest country in the history of the world in the year 2019 to recognize that the right to health care is a human right, that the right for a decent paying jobs when half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck, the right to a decent paying job is a human right. The right for an education. I mean, right now, think about it. You have families that can't afford childcare. You have public school systems that are underfunded. Uh, you have people who cannot afford to go to college or are leaving college fifty, hundred thousand dollars in debt. We have got to state that. Put it right there. The education you need to advance in society is a human right. Retirement security. You shouldn't have to wait for meals on wheels in order to get the nutrition that you need. You know, when you're old, you should be able to retire with dignity. Clean environment, so your kids don't get asthma, or you can turn on the faucet and drink clean water. These are not radical ideas, and this is what I believe in. This is what, to me, democratic socialism means. And there are a number of Democrats. There's one who's going to come out with his own speech tomorrow, John Hickenlooper, pushing back on socialism and this term, basically saying, we believe in all of these things. But why embrace a term that is so loaded? Maybe you can call this something else, well, democratic see. equality, or some <laughs> other term that doesn't, isn't so freighted. Yeah, well, you know, I understand that question. And here's the answer. And it has everything to do with why we call, you know, the message of our campaign is us, not me. Because here is the point. You have heard and I have heard and listeners have heard year after year. People saying, hey, we need health care for everybody. We need education. All of these things. You're right. These are not radical ideas. How come we don't have them? How come we don't have them? Because many of the people who espouse these ideas, who mean these ideas, really at the end of the day are not prepared to deal with the very powerful special interests who do not want these ideas. All right, for example, the vast majority of your listeners understand unlike President Trump, that climate change is real. It is causing devastating problems right now. And if we don't get our act together, there will be irreparable damage. God knows what will happen to this planet. People understand that. But unless we are prepared to take on the fossil fuel industry, not be nice to them, not go some middle ground with them, not work out some kind of compromise, you got to take them on. Because the only way we save this planet, in my view, 
is transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Another point, all right? You're quite right. A lot of the Democratic candidates are going, you know, healthcare is right. Bernie is right. We need to have healthcare for all. How many of them are prepared to take on the incredible power of the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry? Industries, by the way, which have endless amounts of money and will spend probably hundreds of millions of dollars attacking me personally. So my, here's my point. It's not just what we are for. It's to understand what Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, reminded us. Real progress never takes place without struggle, without struggle. And what I believe and what this campaign is about is bringing millions of people together to stand up and say, you know what, Wall Street, you know what insurance companies and drug companies and military, industrial, complex and fossil fuel industry, your greed is destroying what this country is about. We are going to take you on. So what is the difference between taking them on and government control of those industries. So tell me how you do that. So if you're you're saying, I'm not advocating that the government take over the energy sector or the banking sector, but how do you Uh, then have a role for capitalism and these industries to play? Good question. All right. In terms of the fossil fuel industry, I mean, I think we have to simply put it on the table and say, we have got to zero out carbon emissions. The days of the fossil fuel industry are over. We've got to move to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. That's it. Uh, in terms of healthcare, it's not a government. I know Trump will tell us every day that it's a government takeover of the healthcare system. Uh, not true. I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border in Burlington, Vermont. Up in Canada, basically, most doctors, as it happens, for better or worse, unlike the UK, I should tell you, are you know, private practices. Uh, but you have one insurance company. One insurance company, that's the government insurance company. And what I believe is right now, you got a Medicare program, which is a good program for seniors, not as good as it should be. It's good. And we have to expand it. So people, doctors will still practice the way they will practice. The only change that people will see is that uh, the nature of their card will be different and it will say Medicare for everybody rather than United or Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that if you wanted to, like in Canada, if I wanted to supplement that and say, I would like to get hip surgery and I need a specialist no, that I pay sur- for, his, how would that work? No, hip surgery is part of comprehensive health care. If you wanted cosmetic surgery, you didn't like the shape of your nose, all right? <laughs> uh, you know, you want to do stuff like that. But what our legislation does is, is basically cover all of the fundamental health care needs uh, that people have. And by the way, uh, despite Trump's assertions, we expand Medicare for older people. Uh, right now, as you may know, Medicare uh, for seniors does not cover dental care. Uh, it doesn't cover uh, hearing aids or eyeglasses, and we expand that as well. Why do this speech now? Well, it's a speech we planned for several months, and I, and I think this is why. You know, I really gave a lot of thought. My wife and I gave a lot of thought as to whether or not I should run. This is not an easy business, as you know. And we concluded that I should run uh, for two reasons. Number one, we concluded, and I believe is the case today, and I think polling reflects this, that I am, I believe, the strongest candidate to ultimately defeat Donald Trump. In the last couple of days, we've seen polls come out that had us, I think, 10 points ahead of Trump. And I think we can beat him in the key battleground states. Uh, You're going to have Democrats are going to have to win in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. I think uh, we have the agenda uh, that can win in in those states. But here's the second point that I decided to run, is that it is not just 
winning an election. Uh, I am very proud to be Vermont senator, and I enjoy that very much. But I believe for a long list of reasons that we have got to transform our economy to make it work for working people. Because if we don't, there could be even worse than Trump to come in years in, years in the future. So what I'm running is not just to win this election, not just to be a nice guy. I am running to help build a movement of millions of people which is prepared to take on powerful special interests and, in fact, transform this economy. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. There is no excuse for not having health care for all, for our young people not having the best educational opportunities in the world, for all people having affordable housing, etc., etc. And that's why I'm running. Not just the, because it would be cool to be president. It would be cool to be president. I admit that. But I am running because I think it's imperative that we transform our society. Well, I want to get to that question that you said about it, it sort of goes beyond you and whether you're elected president or when you are no longer here, where does this movement go? Where, what, we obviously have seen some movement in terms of other, person, uh, other people taking on this mantle, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez most notably, but it is not in a huge army in Congress yet. Is that something that you assume is going to happen? Yeah, I do. And how does that, how is that going to work? Here's how it happens. You know, look, this is the simple reality, and not too many people will tell you this. By and large, you have a Congress now that is elected to a significant degree by wealthy individuals who have their own agenda. I mean, if you go out on the street to any community in America and you ask people uh, whether they believe it makes sense to give tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, they will tell you you're crazy. My guess is 90 95% of the people tell you you're nuts. That is the agenda of the dominant party in the United States Senate right now, the Republican Party. How does that happen? Because you got a political system which is fundamentally corrupt, which allows billionaires to buy elections, and which has thousands of lobbyists crawling all over Capitol Hill right now. And what this campaign is finally about is putting an end to that undemocratic process. It ain't easy. I'm not here to tell you that I could snap my fingers and make it happen. But of all the things that have happened in this campaign so far, the one that makes me happiest is that we have well over a million people who have volunteered to roll up their sleeves and get involved in this campaign. And if I win the presidency... Those people are not going to go away. We're going to mobilize those people and a lot more, A, to elect progressives to the United States Congress. And I think Alexandria is doing a great job, by the way, to get young people involved in the political process and ultimately to push and pass an agenda that speaks for the needs of all, not just the 1%. And even if that means challenging incumbent Democrats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you endorse someone right now running for Congress if they were— Challenging an incumbent Democrat? Yes, absolutely. Without the slightest hesitancy. Is your expectation that come 2020, 2022, there are going to be a lot more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's running for Congress? Are they coming think, to you and talking you know, to you I, about I, it? Alexandria is a particular political gem. She is brilliant. And, and very much, you know, somebody who knows how to use social media in an incredibly effective way. You know, what we tried to do in 2016, I think with some success, is we said to the young people, of this country. You are the future of America, and you can't sit back and continue to have, you know, a very, very low voter 
turnout rate. You got to get involved. And, you know, in 2018, we had the highest rate of voter turnout rate of young people in modern history. Wasn't enough, but it was a lot. And that influenced the election and the composition of the U.S. House. We got to build on that. And I think the path toward victory is to greatly expand the number of young people who are participating in the political process who are prepared to run for office. I cannot tell you how in every state that I go to, somebody comes up to me and said, Bernie, you know what? You got me involved. I'm now on the school board. I'm now a representative in the legislature. That is what so we So it's have a got pipeline. Do. It doesn't Absolutely. matter whether they're in Congress or not. You're, it, it, oh, it's it's God, that no. they're in the pipeline. Absolutely. To you. And you see, you saw it, you know, you're seeing people. <laughs> one of the great remarks made me very happy in Virginia, you remember, a couple of years ago. Uh, the head of the Republican Party is somebody, he said something. He says, we were losing elections to the legislature from people we had never even heard of. You know, new people who for the first time had got involved, knocked on every door in the community, and they won. And we're seeing this all over the country. I want to talk about the campaign for a minute. I was reading, there was a Good Time interview that just came out the other day. Your campaign manager was quoted saying, a movement that wins is a movement that grows. So let's talk about your movement and your campaign. What can you point to in your campaign in 2019 that has grown from 2016? The number of uh, volunteers that we have, which is maybe the most uh, important. As I said, we have well over a million uh, volunteers in states like Iowa and New Hampshire. We have many, many thousands of volunteers, and that is something that absolutely was not the case last time around. And the, the coalition of people that are supporting you, that are donating to you, that you think are going to vote for you, does that? how different does that look from 2016? I think we're building. I mean, I think many of the, um, you know, when I got into this race, we raised a reasonable amount of money. And it turned out that a, I don't remember the exact number, but a significant percentage of that was from new contributors. So I think there are a lot of new people out there uh, who are getting involved in the campaign in a way that was not the case before. Let's talk a little bit about your expectations for what you think these debates are going to look like between the Democrats and how feisty you think it might get. I have no idea. You know, I was involved in a number of debates with Secretary Clinton, and that was one-on-one. Now you're going to have, what, 10 people up there, so and everyone will have about 14 seconds to explain the history of the world and all that they want to do. But, you know, I think people will see the different views of the candidates, and I think it's a good process. But they have 14 seconds to say uh, socialism isn't the right way to go, or Joe Biden is not the right candidate for this time, or whatever the attack may be. Well, I mean, that's, but, I mean, that's the problem you're going to have when you have so many candidates in a limited amount of time. And, and let me say this, as I've said many, many times, uh, I know a lot of these candidates personally, and many of them are, are friends of mine, and they are good people, and you're not going to hear me disparage them. And I think the job of uh, the citizenry of this country is to listen carefully and get to know the records of the people, get to know what they stand for, and decide who they want to vote for. Thinking about the Midwest, you talked about winning back voters, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin— A lot of those are Obama voters that voted for Trump last time. A lot of them are older. And I keep coming back to this term about socialism, but this is where it seems the Trump campaign is hoping that they can use that term for an older generation that for them, the term has very negative connotations. Well, I think you're right. I think that is what his plan is. But I should also tell you that the concept of democratic socialism is increasingly positive among younger people in this country, who for a variety of reasons are the most progressive and idealistic generation, probably in the history of this country, to tell you the truth. 
And also, economically, are not doing particularly well. Everything being equal, they will probably have a lower standard of living than their parents. So for them, the concept of democratic socialism, which is not uh, connected to uh, Soviet Union authoritarianism, dictatorships and so forth, is somewhat different. But your point is well taken with regard to seniors. And we have got to reach out to seniors and to explain to them, you know what? You enjoy Social Security, don't you? Oh, yeah, we love Social Security. It's very important to our lives. Did you know that when Social Security was created, it was called socialistic? Did you know that Medicare was called socialistic? Do you know that the Veterans Administration has been attacked and attacked and attacked for being socialistic? And we have to simply explain uh, to the seniors of this country what we mean by democratic socialism and how our ideas will, in fact, improve their lives and provide them with more security uh, than they have today. Senator Sanders, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Be sure to check out all our candidate interviews at politicswithamywalter.org slash candidate talk. Now for some context. We know Bernie Sanders has had a major impact on the agenda of the Democratic Party, but this isn't the first time in U.S. history that we've seen a leftward shift within the party. Peter Beinart is a contributing editor for The Atlantic, where he wrote about this very thing back in December. My argument is basically that the Democratic Party only becomes open to left, leftist ideas when there are threats from below, from empowered, mobilized movements that threaten more radical or revolutionary change. Then the Democratic Party moves to try to respond to that. Four percent of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America. And that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. In the 1930s, you saw these radical populist movements, people like Huey Long and Father Coughlin, who were talking about massive, even somewhat lawless redistribution of wealth in the face of the Depression, and also these very powerful and militant labor unions, a whole mass of strikes that took place in the mid-1930s, which created an environment, as Franklin Roosevelt was beginning to run for re-election in 1936, where he actually feared the forces on the left, feared populist movements to his left, feared Huey Long might run, and that moved him to embrace a much more radical agenda than he had when he came into office. And what were the, some of the things that he was moved to do on his agenda by these outside forces? Social Security was one. This Social Security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. Another really crucial one was changing the labor law so that for the first time in American history, it actually put the federal government on the side of the right of people to organize. And that shift, which basically prevented the federal government and, and state governments from doing what they had done before, which is basically breaking up strikes with the police or the army even, m led to a massive expansion of labor union participation in a fairly short period in the 30s and 40s. The labor movement introduces a new form of strategy, the sit-down strike. 
that forced a new kind of economic bargain at these big employers, you know, United Auto Workers, United Steel, which created basically the model of the working class with benefits that could create a kind of middle style, a middle class lifestyle. And then it's not until the 1960s and JFK that you say we get into sort of the second wave of liberalism impacting the party. Someone who cares about the welfare of the people, their health, their housing, their schools, their jobs, their civil rights and their civil liberties, if that is what they mean by a liberal, then I'm proud to say that I'm a liberal. And once again, you note that JFK did not start it, but was trying to embrace the influence or at least find a way to deal with the more radical elements outside the party. Yes. The the civil rights movement, like the labor movement and the populist movement of the 30s, was threatening disorder in the name of pursuing justice. Martin Luther King was basically going out and with enormous bravery, putting his people on the line and saying there is going to be violence in the streets Uh, Even though we will suffer a lot of it, if the federal government does not intervene to create justice, if there's not justice, there will not be social order. And John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson saw this and reluctantly were willing to step in because of the potential for mass conflict. That was, I think, critical to the willingness to get behind the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act and then under Johnson – the Great Society, and War on Poverty, which were efforts to deal with deeply ingrained discrimination and poverty. And now here we are in 2019. This moment that we are in right now, though, you say started before that, and you time it to 2011 and the Occupy Wall Street. Talk about that. I think we are living in an age, in a way we have not since the 60s and 70s, of mass street protest on the left. And it's erupted as it did in the 60s along a whole array of different kind of issue subjects. But I think at the core of it is the outcome of the financial crisis and the way in which it left particularly a younger generation of Americans, millennials, unable to begin to climb economically and develop some of the some of the economic security that prior generations, at least prior generations of white Americans, had managed to attain. Also, in a context of massively increasing economic inequality, and so the first massive outpouring of that was Occupy. And you know, we forget because Occupy kind of launched fire, and then after in a relatively short period of time, it dissipated. But there was a period of time where one third of the cities in California had an Occupy movement. Um, And there were literally most major cities in the United States had these major encampments for a period of time. And that was, I think, the first sign that something was coming, a class-based leftist politics that was going to try to fundamentally challenge the American economic order. And there was also something beyond just the economic order. You also saw Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock. This was also about racial inequality as a really significant movement. Yes. Again, you know, interestingly, that Standing Rock is the most significant Native American protest since the 1960s. And I think another similarity which helps to understand what happened during the Obama years is that as in the 1960s, 
when you saw the emergence of a series of of movements, you know, women's movements, LGBT movements, black power movements, environmental movements, there was a, a realization that Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy were pretty liberal presidents by American standards. And yet, if they weren't willing to, to confront structural injustice as, as people, then, then you would have to take to the streets. And I think this is one of the kind of realizations that was very important to Occupy and Black Lives Matter, that if Barack Obama, if he wasn't able to create the big structural change, couldn't be touched by the law and, and was getting richer and richer, if police brutality and violence was still basically rampant, that meant that you needed a more fundamental change in American politics. You have noted that Roosevelt didn't come into office promising a radically more equal America. JFK didn't come to the presidency intending to champion racial equality. LBJ was really driven by a fear of unrest. Bernie Sanders is different from them in that he is actually starting all the way over to the left rather than having to be pushed there. Absolutely. If Bernie Sanders were to win, he would be unlike any president in modern American history, in the sense that he has always, from his very early days, identified himself with these insurgent, fairly fringe ideological movements, as, as opposed to being people who started, as you say, like Kennedy or Johnson or FDR, who basically started as quite mainstream politicians and were pushed by events. We've never really had a, an elected Democratic president like that, and it would be a massive, massive shift to have someone who was so insurgent and oppositional ideologically by nature actually occupying the White House. Peter Barnard, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. All this hour, we've been talking about democratic socialism and the push left within the Democratic Party. Now I'd like to do a little reality check. And for that, I'm joined by Cheryl Gay Stolberg, congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Cheryl, you spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill. You talk to a lot of members of Congress. Tell us, how significant do you think this split, if there is one, between those who want to push the party more left and those who want to keep the party far away from the label socialism? So I think if you take the label socialism and set it aside, the split is very, very real. If you count progressives in with the socialist wing of the party, I would say you have a split kind of right down the middle. You've got people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and lump in with that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is advocating for policies like Medicare for all, up against what I call and what other Democrats call the majority makers, those Democrats who won in swing districts, many of them carried by President Trump. They are centrists, and they don't want to go near socialism with a 10-foot pole. So how is this playing out, though, legislatively? It seems as if, Cheryl, that Nancy Pelosi has kind of kept the party more toward the majority makers agenda. We're not having big hearings on Medicare for all. We haven't had a passage of a Green New Deal. She's keeping impeachment off the table. Is that fair? And where do you think this goes? Um, I think that is fair. But we actually have had a hearing on Medicare for all just this week in the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee with jurisdiction over health care legislation. It was not a big to do hearing. It was kind of a bunch of experts. And it kind of got lost in the shuffle with all this talk about impeachment and contempt, etc. So I think Nancy Pelosi is letting the progressives kind of have a little bit of room 
have their say, have their hearings. But yes, you're right. She is really kind of keeping the Democrats firmly in the wing of the majority makers because she knows that if she loses those seats, she's not speaker anymore and there is no more majority. Well, and how does the progressive wing feel about this? Are they on board with that or are we going to see something of a revolution within the caucus? I don't think we're going to see a revolution within the caucus because they also know that they need the majority makers to stay in the majority. However, that is not to say that we will not see them advocate for their policies. For instance, when Joe Biden announced his Green New Deal or his climate change plan, which I think he said he would spend something like $2 trillion on, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that to be effective, we would need to spend $10 trillion on a climate plan. You know, that is not happening. And those kinds of statements are like presents with a big red bow wrapped around them for Donald Trump and the Republicans because they want to label the Democratic Party as, you know, crazy left-wing socialists who would drain the federal treasury of all its money and, you know, rob from the rich and give to the poor. And that's going to be their playbook, clearly, in 2020. But I'm also wondering about the intra-party fight right now within primaries. We know that the Tea Party in 2010, 2012, and beyond really pushed out a lot of moderate Republicans. Is that what we're going to see in 2020, that folks like the Democratic Socialists are going to be targeting some of these moderates? And how significant is that going to be? Uh, I think so. Frankly, that's what we already saw in 2018. We saw progressives challenging um, longtime Democrats. I'm thinking of Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts, who beat Michael Capuano, a longtime Democratic incumbent. So I see no reason to think that the progressive wing of the party is not going to push and push hard for its policies to take root. And that will include primary challenges against sitting incumbents. Let's talk a minute about Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. She gets a tremendous amount of attention in social media, on cable news. But Cheryl, what kind of influence do you think she has within the party? And how do people within her caucus see her, even those who don't come from her ideological wing? I think even those who don't come from her ideological wing can see that she is very smart. She's a very charismatic figure. She's got a lot of social media followers. A lot of them envy that. You'll hear them say, oh, my God, like she's, you know, she's got four million Twitter followers or whatever she has. And that's a power base. So while she may be alone as a Democratic Socialist within the Democratic Caucus of the House of Representatives, She has a huge power base and a huge following in the grassroots, and that does confer with it some power on Capitol Hill. Yeah. So how does she use that power? Is it just is it about setting the agenda? Is it about trying to get more people into the Democratic Socialist wing in Congress? I I see her using it with, frankly, very sharp questioning of witnesses. If you watch her in hearings, she goes straight to the point. She's using her platform in a way to attract attention for her ideas and to make her voice known. 
I have not seen her trying to convert any of her colleagues into becoming democratic socialists. I have not heard anything of that sort. I think she's an active member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is a force within the party. You don't hear the caucus's leaders talking about, you know, socialism, but you know, clearly she's an advocate for the left, whatever you call her political label. And just very quickly, what do you think about the influence that the term socialism is going to have in the 2020 election? I think it cuts both ways. I think, like I said before, it's a gift to Republicans because a lot of Americans are still kind of scared, frankly, by the word socialism. But I also think it's, frankly, an inspiring word for a lot of young people, a lot of very young progressive Democrats who don't feel like capitalism has worked for them, who want a more equitable and just distribution of wealth in this country. And so we're going to hear it a lot. Cheryl Gray Stolberg is a congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, thanks as always for being here. Thanks, Amy. We've heard a lot about socialism in the past hour, and we know that for decades the concept was maligned. But after the recession, young people got on board with it. Our next guest, though, says today there's a knowledge gap that's at play here. We already have a serious problem of political ignorance where most of the public doesn't know much about what the government is doing. That's Elia Soman, a professor of law at George Mason University. Polls show that more than two-thirds of Americans can't even name the three branches of their federal government. So if the government uh, controlled vastly more of our lives than it currently does, uh, it would be even more difficult for voters to effectively monitor what is going on. When I talked to him about socialism's renaissance, I pointed back to my conversation with Bernie Sanders about this effort to distinguish the democratic socialism of today from the types of socialism we've seen throughout history. So nobody here that I know of uh, is talking about a massive takeover of the means of production. Might have made some sense 150 years ago, but that's not what we're talking about. Elia, do you see that same distinction? Possibly, but it doesn't work nearly as well as he claims that it does. It's true, under his proposals, most of the economy would formally remain under private ownership. However, if you add up all that he proposes to do, federal government spending would more than double. And in addition, there would be a massive increase in regulation. So even though formally uh, the economy or much of it might be under private ownership, in reality, something like 60 to 70 percent of the economy would consist of government spending. It's not quite as far gone as the Soviet Union under Stalin, but still the government has overwhelming control of the economy and it has massive power over nearly every aspect of our lives uh, that could easily be abused. Is that on par with, if we're talking about Scandinavian countries, for example? The Scandinavian countries, while they have high levels of government spending, they have very low levels of government regulation of the economy. Uh, They don't even have minimum wages, for example, uh, so that they, to some extent, offset their high spending by having very low levels of regulation and also very great openness to international trade. By contrast, Bernie Sanders and his allies want to massively increase regulation. Uh, They also, many of them are protectionists. So all told, they're advocating a much higher level of government intervention than countries like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and so forth. So talk to us then a little bit about what you see as the danger then of having a government that also plays such a significant role in the regulation of the economy. 
in the history of socialism, massive government control of the economy has historically led to oppression, poverty, and even mass murder. Uh, and there's two reasons why this has tended to happen. One is government, even with the best possible government bureaucrats and politicians, they don't have the knowledge to centrally control all or most of a large, complicated economy. The second is that socialism requires an immense concentration of power. Uh, politicians don't tend to be the kinds of people who are uh, really nice and scrupulous about their use of the power. Uh, liberal Democrats who are attracted to these sort of ideas, they might ask themselves, what happens if someone like Donald Trump gets his hands on the levers of that much power? Right. And the answer, I assume, would be, well, we'll just it, when we see these people, we'll vote them out. I think that's overly optimistic. We did elect Donald Trump, and he's not the first dangerous demagogue to ever rise to power uh, in a liberal democracy. In addition, if you look elsewhere, uh, we actually have an example going on right now of how a very dangerous person can arise in a uh, democratic system. Hugo Chavez, who implemented socialism in Venezuela, originally came to power through the democratic process. I would add also that when government controls this much of the economy, it's very questionable that it can remain democratic in the long run. With such enormous resources at its disposal, the government can use them to punish its critics and reward its friends, which is exactly what has happened in Venezuela, uh, where it's no longer a real democracy in large part because of uh, methods like this. Uh, and while democratic institutions are better established in the U.S. than they are in Venezuela, uh, we shouldn't assume that they're infinitely robust and can survive any kind of punishment or pressure and I'm not at all convinced that they could survive the pressure that would arise from having a government which controlled 60, 70% or even more of the economy and had enormous leverage over people. The other argument that uh, Bernie Sanders makes is, look, we already have what he calls socialist programs for corporations. In quantitative terms, the programs for quote-unquote regular people, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, are vastly greater than any corporate subsidies that we have in the American political system. These three items uh, are far larger than anything else in the federal budget except perhaps defense. But it's certainly true that there are some uh, unjust subsidies and protectionism and bailouts and the like for corporations. The solution to that is to get rid of it. Depending on the poll that you look at, you see... Uh number of young people, in fact, in some cases, a majority of younger people saying that they like the idea of socialism. What do you think this means as these younger people come into adulthood, start voting, start becoming part of the process? I think obviously it's a negative tendency and that many of them do not appreciate or understand the uh, risk that socialism poses is not unique to younger voters. There's a lot of political ignorance among older voters or voters my age as well. That said, I think there is a negative trend there and it's one to be addressed. We want younger people and older people as well to be more aware of the actual historical record of socialism and also of just how massive uh, an intervention in the economy uh, today's so-called uh, democratic socialists propose. In effect, they want to have it both ways. On one hand, they say, we're a great big new radical break with the status quo. We're not like the state traditional politicians. On the other hand, when you challenge them with the actual record of socialism, uh, they say, no, no, all we want is you know, a bit a increase in the welfare state. We have nothing in common with Hugo Chavez, even though many of us have praised him in the past. Uh, so I think uh, they shouldn't be allowed to have their cake and eat it too in this respect. Eli Soman, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ilya Soman is a professor of law at George Mason University. All right, here's my take. Bernie Sanders was a phenomenon in 2016 and continues to have incredible influence on the issues and the ideology shaping the party. But at a time when defeating Donald Trump is the top issue for most Democratic primary voters, he's having a hard time convincing them that he's the best choice to do that. A big reason? His commitment to the Democratic Socialist label. And no matter how many speeches or interviews the Vermont senator gives to define the term, he can't single-handedly wash away the negative perceptions that that term carries. Plus, Sanders is also competing for the first time with other Democrats who share his vision of radical economic change, but eschew the loaded term socialism. Think Elizabeth Warren. Of course, whether Sanders is the nominee or not, the Trump campaign is going to slap the socialist label on the eventual Democratic nominee. After all, it was Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who popularized two key planks of the Democratic agenda, Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. And then there's the fact that while he preaches a revolution, Sanders has yet to build a coalition broad enough or deep enough to win the nomination. He has a committed group of backers and donors, but he hasn't been able to build beyond that. And it seems unlikely that doubling down on democratic socialism is going to help him expand his appeal to one very important constituency where he's still struggling, communities of color. Even so, Sanders has an ability to confound conventional wisdom. Plus, his committed base gives him staying power, a golden asset in a field of 23 candidates. That's all for us today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.